In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Revelation chapters 12, 13, and 14 are three important and very vivid chapters of the book of Revelation. They introduce for us three, excuse me, seven main figures that play significant roles in the Great Tribulation. And this great sign of Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, introduces the first of the seven. We're introduced to a woman, to a dragon, to a man-child, to an archangel, to the offspring of the woman, to a beast that comes out of the sea, and a beast that comes out of the earth. And most of these are identified very specifically as being signs. In other words, John isn't trying to tell us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, that the earth will see a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. That's not what the world would see. That's what John saw, and he says very plainly that he saw it as a sign. Look at it there in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared. In other words, this woman represents something. And this is where we are just very careful and very, should I say, we try to be disciplined in our understanding of the book of Revelation. When it says it's a sign, we believe it's a sign. When it doesn't say it's a sign, we believe it to be literal unless there's very good and compelling reason to understand that it's a sign without saying it's a sign. In this picture here in verse 1, we have, as we said before, a woman clothed with the sun. Now again, Because he says it's a sign, we don't expect this woman to appear literally on the earth. But God will use this sign to communicate something to John and to us. Now, in the book of Revelation, when women are presented as signs or as figures, they're often used to represent religious systems. And I mean that in a neutral sense. Now, for example, in a good way... A bride represents the church, the body of Christ. In a bad way, Jezebel is associated with the religious system of false teaching in Revelation chapter 2. Then in Revelation chapter 17, the false religion of the end times is spoken of, represented by a woman known as the great harlot. So when we see this woman who's a sign, we understand she probably represents to us a religious system of some kind. And then we see that she's clothed with the sun. Now, this woman has been associated with many different religious ideas. Roman Catholics claim this woman is Mary. And they say here she is pictured as the queen of heaven. It's very common in Roman Catholic art for them to picture Mary with the sun behind her, or prominent in the picture, with the moon over her head and with stars around her feet because they're trying to communicate that this is Mary, the sign pictured in Revelation chapter 12. Now, I don't believe that this is representing Mary at all. By the way, you should know there's another Mary who laid claim to being this woman. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, said that she was this woman of Revelation chapter 12. Well, I don't think so. (laughs) Scripturally, This woman clothed with the sun should be identified with Israel. And we find a very strong scriptural precedent for this. Now, again, let's remind ourselves, 
that the best and the easiest way to interpret the Bible is to let the Bible be its own commentary. And so you just want to know, is this figure of a woman associated with the sun and moon and stars, is it used anywhere else in Scripture? And absolutely it is. When you take a look at Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, when he was a young man, had a dream. And in his dream, the sun represented his father, the moon represented his mother, and 12 stars, or actually 11 stars, he would have been the 12th, represented all of his brothers. So you have each one of those figures. The sun, the moon, and 12 stars representing the family of Israel. The father of the tribes, the mother of the tribes, And, of course, the tribes themselves represented by stars. And we're not surprised to find that in Old Testament passages, Israel, or should we say Zion or Jerusalem, synonymous terms with Israel, they are often represented as women. Isaiah chapter 54, Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 16, Hosea chapter 2. Each one of these passages represents Israel in some way or another as a woman. And so when we see this woman here clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars, we see here that this woman is Israel. Now again, she's representing Israel. Notice what happens in verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now later in the chapter, it will be very clear that this child born of Israel is Jesus. Verse 5 will tell us, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There's no doubt that that's a messianic phrase taken from a messianic psalm, Psalm 2, and applied to the Messiah himself. This woman gives birth to the Messiah. If you notice, it also says that she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The pain described here is usually taken to refer to the travail of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. It was a time of pain and oppression and suffering under the Roman occupying armies. And she gave birth. Now, we find another character introduced in verse 3, the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now again, we're reminded that this is a sign. The creature here is not literally a great fiery red dragon, but a dragon represents his nature and his character. And it's all about denoting fierce power and murderous nature. It's a picture of the fullness of evil and all of its hideous strength. It's also a picture of earthly authority. Seven diadems are crowns upon his heads. The dragon has great power and claims royal authority with the crowns. And the crowns represent the, the, the presumptive claims of royal authority against the true king. This dragon wants to be considered a king. Now we'll talk more about this in coming weeks. But this ties this whole prophetic section, Revelations 12, 13, and 14, it ties these chapter of Revelation very much together with passages in Daniel that we'll take a closer look at beginning at next week. Let's focus more on just exactly what this dragon does in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. 
His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, when it says that a, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, many believe this describes one third of the angelic host being in league with Satan. Stars, especially in the Old Testament, are a common picture or idiom referring to angels. And so many people would say that this is Satan drawing away a third of the angelic host with him when he rebelled. We know from verse 9 that angels fell with Satan because it says, describing there, his angels. So this seems to describe this third of the stars of heaven, an army of angelic beings in league with Satan that makes up the world of demonic spirits. Friends, sometimes we scratch our heads and we wonder, where did Satan come from? Where do demons come from? Let's understand this. God never created an evil being. Never once. God can't create evil. But he did make angels. And he made them of different powers and of different ranks. The Bible describes angels and principalities and powers, all all different sort of rankings or categories of angelic beings. And they seem to be created especially fit for their own joys, for their own life in in his glorious realm. It also seems that at some point in, in history, in God's eternal span of history, these angelic beings had a free will. By the way, a free will is implied in the very creation of moral beings. If God creates moral beings, they have a choice. They have a will. And these angels at one time had a a time of choosing. And many of them remained steadfast to God. These are known as the faithful angels, the, the, the angels that are faithful unto God. But some did not abide in the truth, and they revolted against the rule of heaven, and they became unchanging enemies of God and his kingdom. It would seem that the time of choosing for angelic beings is over. That's done with. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. The same will happen to us. Right now, our time on this earthly life, this is our time of choosing, right? You choose whether or not you will follow Jesus Christ. But, but there comes a time when the choice is settled. There's no more choose. That's it. Apparently, the same time has come for those angels. So now they are locked in their choice. Those who are the, the, the angels that have fallen away, who are demonic spirits, they're confirmed in their choice. And the good angels, so to speak, are confirmed in their choice. And Satan, of course is one of these angels, drawing with him a third of the stars of heaven. Now notice what else this dragon did, as well as drawing a third of the stars of the heaven and throwing them to earth. Verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, of course, you recognize that this was fulfilled in the, in the birth of Jesus. The attempts to devour her child were initially fulfilled by Herod's attempts to kill Jesus as a child. But Jesus, protected by his father and not only his earthly father, but his heavenly father fled to, jo- fled to Egypt under the hand of Joseph. 
Might I say also that it was also fulfilled throughout Jesus' life as Satan attacked him on several occasions. You know, there, there came several occasions before Jesus went to the cross when his life was in physical peril. But God delivered him out of them all. So now we have the woman, we have the dragon. Now in verse 5, we have more about this child. Verse 5, And she bore, speaking of the woman, of verse 1, And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now clearly, this refers to Jesus Christ the Messiah. He rules the world with a rod of iron. And you know what that means? It's like a crowbar. It's the kind of thing that does business. Now, a rod, of course, is one of the tools in the hand of a shepherd. A shepherd would use a rod, and he would use the rod to correct the sheep when they messed up. He'd whack the sheep on the back or on the legs with the rod. He'd use the sheep to beat off a wolf. He, excuse me, he'd use the sheep to beat off the wolf. That's ridiculous. A shepherd swinging around a sheep like that. That's a ridiculous picture. He'd use the rod to beat off the wolf, of course, and to protect the sheep. Now, if you picture all the time what a shepherd would use is a rod made of wood. But this shepherd is so mighty, is so awesome, that he has a rod of iron. That means he means business, doesn't he? And this, of course, is a picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so when it says that she bore a male child, it refers to Jesus' birth. And to rule all nations with a rod of iron, it refers to Jesus' triumphant return on this earth. Right now, could it be said that Jesus rules all nations with a rod of iron? I don't think so. He rules through his love, of course. He rules through his guiding providence, but not in the way that the Bible says he will one day rule. Really, what he's stating is the bookends of Jesus' earthly work and alluding to all that stands in between, his birth and his ultimate triumph and glory at the end of all times. Now again, the male child is obviously Jesus. Verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now again, this is as, in the course of these things, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Persecuted by the dragon, the woman is protected by God in a prepared place for 1,260 days. Now, there's a few things important here. This helps us to understand with, I believe, certainty that the woman is Israel and not Mary. Now, if you are going to identify a woman who gave birth to Christ as a sign, you certainly could say it would be Mary, the mother of Jesus, or you could say it would be Israel as a nation giving birth to Christ. Either one could fit. But the picture doesn't fit with Mary once you get to verse 6. How could Mary possibly flee into the wilderness in this way? Yet Israel can, and Israel will, and it will during this period of 1,260 days. Now again, we come to one of our important time markers of the book of Revelation, and repeatedly we will see this marker come up indicating a three and a half year period. 1,260 days is three and a half years. 
And whenever you see a three and a half year period indicated in the book of Revelation, you know that it's speaking of a final seven year period that the Bible describes for us in the book of Daniel, known as Daniel's 70th week. And week means a week of years, not a week of days. It's a, it's a set, a period of seven years. And when you're talking about one of these three and a half year periods, you're either talking about the first part of that seven year period or the second part of the seven year period. And this is speaking of the second part. Because the Bible says that during the first half of that last seven year period, the first three and a half years, during that part of it, that this world leader that's inspired and animated by the dragon, he will get along with Israel just fine. But in the middle of that, he will turn on Israel, break whatever covenant or treaty that he's made with Israel, and begin persecuting Israel violently. And this is exactly what it's talking about here in verse 6. The woman flees from this persecution because she's being persecuted by the dragon. By the way, it says, run into the wilderness. Some people, based on some other passages of Scripture, have identified that perhaps some of them will flee to the rock city of Petra, south of the Dead Sea. It's reported that Christian businessmen have stocked the place with food and evangelistic tracts in Hebrew, anticipating the day when at least some of this remnant of Israel will flee to that place. Now, prepared in the wilderness. So there's a place that God has prepared, not a singular place, because this would be a large group of Israel, but they'll flee, they'll scatter under this tremendous persecution in these last days. Now, that's the conflict on earth. But here we're going to shift the scene and go to a conflict in heaven. We'll come back to the conflict on earth, but take a look at verse 7, because it's going to give you the heavenly reality behind this earthly battle. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor is a place found for them in heaven any longer. At the midpoint of the great tribulation, God will turn the tide against Satan, first in heaven and then on earth, and a battle will take place that will deny Satan access to heaven. Now, the battle is fought between Satan and Michael, Michael the archangel. I need to deal with a point that may seem almost silly to some of you to deal with, but... It may come across sometime or another, you come across this teaching. There are some people who believe that Michael, the archangel, is actually Jesus. And that Michael is, is just another name, another title for Jesus, and he represents Jesus in the Bible. Well, this is wrong on every count. By the way, you should know that groups such as uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and by the way, I should say the Seventh-day Adventists believe that Michael, the archangel, is uh, the same as Jesus. Well, some say that Michael must be Jesus because he has his angels. Did you see that in verse 7? War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. But listen, if Satan, who is a fallen angelic being, has his angels, did you see verse 7? And the dragon and his angels fought. Listen, if Satan can have his angels, I think Michael can have his angels. It doesn't mean that they belong to Michael. It just means that they're, they're on his side. Some say that Michael must be like Jesus because the name Michael means one like God. 
But if this were a title of Jesus, it could argue against his deity, not for it. Because it would say that Jesus is like God, but not God. No, what it's just saying is that in his glory and high position of status, Michael is like God. Some say that Michael must be Jesus because he's called the archangel in Jude verse 9. And this may mean that, uh, likely means that uh, Michael is a leader or prince among angels. And some people say, well, Jesus is the only leader of the angels, and Jesus is the only prince among angels. But no, we know from Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, verse 20, and verse 21, that Michael is one angelic prince among others. Also, Paul refers to an archangel in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in a way that presupposes that there's other archangels. Now, friends, when you go and you take all the evidence, there's really no reason at all to say that Michael the archangel is identified with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a fight here. The dragon and his angels, Michael and his angels. If you see it, it's very dramatic when it says there in verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. This is a dramatic scene of battle between good angels and bad angels. Now again, let's remember, they belong to the same species, angelic beings. Some are faithful to God. Some are not faithful to God. But they belong to the same species, if you will. Now again, who fights in this battle? Might I remind you that this is truly a battle between equals. The dragon represents Satan, right? There's really no doubt about that. If anybody's doubting, maybe you think I'm making a stretch here about the dragon representing Satan. Take a look at verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. I think that pretty much settles it. (laughs) Now, if this is truly a battle between Satan and Michael the archangel, what I want you to see is that this is a battle between equals. A battle between God and Satan is not a battle of equals. You know, sometimes Christians get into the nasty habit of thinking that Satan is God's opposite. You have white and you have black. You have hot and you have cold. You have God and you have Satan. No, not at all. Now, if there's any opposite for Satan, who is a created angelic being, it's another angelic being of high order and rank, and that would be Michael the archangel. Now, why is this battle fought? There was a previous scene of conflict between Michael and Satan described for us in Jude verse 9. And at that scene, Satan wanted to prevent the resurrection and glorification of Moses because he knew that God had plans for the resurrected and glorified body of Moses. Here is another occasion where Satan wants to get in the way of God's plan for the end times. And so who does God dispatch to deal with him? It's Michael. Now, when is this battle fought? Well, it seems to be fought at the midpoint of the seven-year period as described by Daniel. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, At that time, and again, I believe it's speaking of the midpoint, the the time when the, the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never since, never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. So 
I believe it happens at this midpoint. Now, how is the battle fought? Well, we know that this is a real fight. We know that it's not just a, a stare down between Michael and Satan. But is it a material fight or a spiritual fight? Is this a battle that takes place in the flesh and blood realm, so to speak? Or does it take place in a spiritual realm? We know that our battle with Satan and his demons is spiritual. And it's fought on the battleground of truth and deception, of fear and faith. Now, in regard to material attacks against the believer, Satan and his demons were disarmed at the cross. That's what Colossians chapter 2 says. But it is possible that among angels there is a material battle to be fought in ways that we can only imagine. In his classic work, Paradise Lost, Milton imagined this battle, and I'll read a section of this if I can pull it off. It says, Michael bids sound at the archangel trumpet, through the vast of heaven it sounded, and the faithful armies run. Hosanna to the highest, nor stood at gaze. The adverse legions, nor less hideous joined, the horrid shock, now storming furry rose, and clamor such as heard in heaven till now was never. Arms on armor, clashing braid, horrible discord. And the maddening wheels of brazen chariots raised. Dire was the noise of conflict. Overheard the dismal hiss of fiery darts and flaming follies, volleys flew. And flying vaulted either host with fire. So that under fiery cope together rushed both battles main. With ruinous assault and inextinguishable rage. All heaven resounded and all earth been then. All earth had to her center shook. Here he's in very vivid and poetic language trying to describe these clashing of angelic armies. And he's picturing it in a very material way. And maybe it'll happen in a material way. Maybe it'll happen in just a spiritual way. We don't know. But we do know the result of the battle. Verse 8. They did not prevail, nor is a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, this shows that this has not happened yet. Because might I say that there is a place in heaven right now for Satan. The Bible says that right now Satan accuses God's people before the throne. We know this from Job chapter 1, from this very same chapter of Revelation, verse 10. Now, it troubles some people to think that Satan has access to heaven. And it's because of a mistaken teaching. That mistaken teaching is God can allow nothing unholy in his presence. Sometimes we say that, sometimes preachers say that, and the general point they're trying to get across is true, that God is holy, and God requires holiness. But friends, it's not true that God cannot allow anything unholy in his presence. The Bible clearly says that while Satan appears on earth, and while it describes him as the prince of the power of the air in the sense of this earthly atmosphere, it also says that Satan has access to heaven where he accuses God's people before the throne. How do you like them apples? To know right now, Satan could be before the throne of God accusing you. You know, nobody likes to be accused. Nobody likes to be criticized in this way, and especially when the person's right. And I got to say that a lot of times when Satan accuses us before the throne, he's, he's right, isn't he? 
I mean, he could talk about what a low-level Christian uh, I am, or, or this sin in my life, or that sin in your life, and here he's piling on the accusations. And, and if we could be privy to it, we'd stand there and go, oh, boy, he's right, oh, boy, he's right about that one. And you'd be scratching your head and say, you know, he's not even pulling out the best stuff here. And I feel like a worm, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Because we have a tremendous defense attorney in heaven. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who listens to every accusation and then says, you know what? It's been covered by the penalty I paid on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? But right now, he has that place, but it won't be forever. And during this time of great tribulation, there's going to be this war in heaven, and Satan will be cast out from heaven, and no longer any place will be found for him. Verse 9 So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This single verse uses so many different titles for Satan. It calls him the dragon, which conjures up image of ferocious power and and, and just mighty evil. It calls him the serpent of old. And what does that echo up? Well, the, the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? And the serpents work there. It calls him the devil. And you understand what the word devil means. It comes from the Greek diabolos, which has the meaning of defaming or slandering. It means that he accuses us. And then it calls him also not just the devil, but Satan. You know what Satan means? It means adversary, one who's against you. And finally, it describes him in verse 9 as the one who deceives the whole world. He's a deceiver. He won't be able to carry on his work forever because he's going to be cast to the earth. Did you know that the Bible describes four different falls of Satan? He didn't just fall once. He falls four times. The first fall happened before we were ever created, or at least before Satan ever tempted anybody in the Garden of Eden. The first fall occurred from glorified to profane. The second fall occurred right here, describing this place where he no longer has access in heaven to where he's restricted to the earth. Then it describes his fall from freedom on the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's in Revelation chapter 20. And then finally it describes his fall from the pit to the lake of fire. And again, that's Revelation chapter 20. So there's four different falls of Satan. But it's not only him. If you notice, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This indicates that demonic spirits are indeed fallen angels, those who joined Satan in his rebellion against God. They are his angels. There's a few things that come to my mind in this. First of all, when we read verse 9, we look at it and it's, you know, it's kind of exciting, right? Yeah, he's done away with no longer, he can't accuse us anymore. He can't work his things. Now he's confined to the earth. The, the things are going to get wrapped up. Now this is great. Let me ask you a question. Why doesn't God do this right now? Why not? Is it because he's unable? He hasn't gathered up enough power yet to do it. No, no, no. God doesn't do it yet because he's not ready yet. It's not the best thing for God to do. Now, you and I would look at this and say, listen, if I had the power to put Satan out of business, I'd do it right now. God says, no. 
Do you realize that even though it's hard for us to accept and understand sometimes, Satan is only serving God's purposes? That's what he's doing. If he wasn't doing that, God would put him out of business. You say, well, how can that be? We have the greatest illustration of it at the cross itself. There Satan was working his his work with all of his mind. And there it looked like Satan's greatest day of triumph when really it was at the cross that his own death warrant was signed. And so God allows Satan to do his work because in the end it'll work for God's work. And when it'll no longer work for God's work, then God will shut it down. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. The other thing that I find encouraging about this is we find this description of the angels here who fell with Satan. We identify them along with verse 4 as the third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This reminds me of something. If Satan drew a third of the angelic beings and they fell with Satan, what does that tell you about the proportion between bad angels to good angels? The good ones outnumber them two to one. And uh, praise the Lord for the good guys. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, we don't know exactly who's behind this loud voice, other than we do know that it must be a representative of redeemed humanity. It's not God. It's not an angel. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 10, the accuser of our brethren. Well, he's a brother to those who are accused, and that means he's not an angel or he's not God himself. Now, we're also blessed to know in verse 10 that at that point, Satan's work of accusing ends at that time, when he's cast out from his access to heaven. Right now, his work of accusing is still going on. So today we have and we need an intercessor and an advocate in heaven. That's a beautiful idea there in verse 10. Cast down the accuser of our brethren. By the way, did you notice here? For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. If there's anything that you're going to admire about the devil, admire his work ethic. He's very busy. And he works very hard. And uh, that's one of the reasons why he enjoys success. There's not much we can learn from the devil, but that's one of them. And look at verse 11. What a beautiful declaration. And they overcame him. Who's the they? Well, it's the brethren, the, the ones who were accused by Satan. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. This precious verse gives us three keys to the saints' victory over Satan. Did you see the first one? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. You see, it's the blood of Jesus that overcomes the accusations of Satan. 
Those accusations mean nothing against us because Jesus has already paid the penalty our sins deserved. You might be even worse than Satan accuses you of being before the throne of God, but you're still made righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, it's important to say when it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, it's important to say that we do not regard the blood of Jesus in a superstitious manner. It is not a magical potion, nor, please follow me closely because it would be easy for me to be misunderstood on this point, nor is it the literal blood of Jesus literally applied that saves or cleanses us. Let me say that again. It is not the literal blood of Jesus literally applied that saves or cleanses us. You do not have to have a drop of Jesus' actual blood applied to your body for you to be cleansed from, from your sins. If that were so, then his Roman executioners who were splattered with blood as they drove the nails through his wrists, then they would have been automatically saved. And the actual number of molecules of the literal blood of Jesus would limit the number of people who could be saved. No, when the Bible says it's the blood of the Lamb, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, it speaks to us of the real, literal, physical death of Jesus Christ in our place on our behalf before God. It's that literal death in our place and the literal judgment he bore on our behalf, that is what saves us. You do not need to come into physical contact with a molecule or a drop of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his death that saves you. But then why does it say by the blood of the lamb? Well, because by the blood emphasizes the death of Jesus. He didn't only suffer, but he died. The poured out sacrificial blood is a consistent theme throughout scriptures applied for atonement. And then it says by the blood of the lamb. That phrase, of the Lamb, emphasizes the substitutionary work of his death because the Passover Lamb died as a substitute for others. We deserve to be on the cross. He was punished in our place. And friends, he was literally punished, and he literally died. Now, the blood of Jesus does many things with us. But how can it be said, as it said, verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, you overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. How? Well, we understand that the blood of Jesus heals our troubled conscience because we know that by his death, sin is atoned for. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience and and you don't have to live in torment of your past sin. Because the blood of Jesus will cleanse your conscience. But might I say, my friends, that to only use the blood of Jesus in that way, to limit its application in your life, to, to easing your conscience about your past sin, to only use the blood of Jesus that way is selfish. The great doctrine of Jesus' work on the cross is not used only as a pillow to rest our weariness, but it's used as a weapon to subdue Satan and sin. It's 
So how does the blood of the Lamb conquer Satan in the life of the believer? How does the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute bring us victory? Well, it works first and foremost because his victory is our victory. We are identified in him. When Jesus was baptized, it's as if you were baptized. When he obeyed, it's as if you obeyed. When he died on the cross, it's as if you died on the cross. When he rose again, triumphant over sin and death, you did too. And it works with the victory over Satan as well. Let me read you a passage from Charles Spurgeon. He says, first, you are to regard Satan this day as being already literally and truly overcome through the death of the Lord Jesus. Satan is a vanquished enemy. By faith, grasp your Lord's victory as your own, since he triumphed in your nature and on your behalf. Come, my soul, you have conquered Satan by your Lord's victory. Will you not be brave enough to fight a beaten foe and trample down the enemy whom the Lord has already thrust down? You don't need to be afraid, but say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when you look at Satan, recognize that as you are in Christ, he's a beaten foe. Secondly, the blood of Jesus works to overcome Satan because the work of Jesus on the cross for us is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And it's a constant remembrance, a constant reminding of the blood of the Lamb. It assures us that every fear Satan whispers into our mind is a lie. Friends, every time Satan tries to whisper that fearful lie into your mind, if you would remember, my Savior loves me so much he died on the cross and stood in my place as a guilty sinner when he sinned not at all. If you would remember that, you'd say, with such love on my side, what does it matter what fears Satan puts into my mind? I reject it completely. We can also say that it works because the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute reveals the true nature of sin and that makes us want to avoid sin. When you know how bad sin is, you want to avoid it. Satan loves to make sin seem pleasurable. But the cross, like nothing else, reveals the bitterness of sin to us. If Jesus died because of sin, then we see what a murderous thing sin is. And we don't want to do it. But it works because the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute also purchases us as God's personal property. And that makes us want to live unto God. Friends, if you live with the constant reminder of the work of Jesus Christ, with this knowledge of the blood of the Lamb, if you live with that, you'll live a life of spiritual victory over Satan. I know it won't be significant battle, but that's your ground of victory. But let me say again, we use the blood of the Lamb in spiritual warfare, but not as a Christian abracadabra as if chanting the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus could keep Satan away like garlic is said to keep away vampires. No, friends, it's our understanding, it's our apprehension, it's our focus. May I say, it's our obsession with the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute. That's what wins the battle. Charles Spurgeon said, and I'll read another quote from him. 
The precious blood of Jesus is not meant for us to merely admire and exhibit. We must not be content to talk about it and extol it and do nothing with it, but we are to use it in the great crusade against unholiness and unrighteousness till it is said of us, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. This precious blood is to be used for overcoming and consequently for holy warfare. We dishonor it if we do not use it to that end. The dog of hell knows the dread name which makes him lie down. Therefore, we must confront him with the authority and especially with the atonement of the Lamb of God. That's the first aspect of it. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. But notice verse 11 also says, and by the word of their testimony. This overcomes Satan's deceptions. Knowing and remembering the work of God in their life protects them against Satan's deceptions. It was the word of their testimony. Friends, when you have a testimony of what God has done in your life, you can overcome Satan's deceptions. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9? Where Jesus came up and healed this blind man, and the blind man didn't even know what was going on. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Later on, the religious authorities begin to question the blind man and interrogate him. Well, who did this to you? And, you know, was he a sinner? Was it Jesus? All these different questions, they rattled off at him. The blind man finally just ended up saying, look, I don't know all what you're talking about, but this is what I know. Once I was blind, and now I see. Friends, that's the word of the testimony. And when you can say, this is what Jesus Christ has done in my life, you've got something to stand on. Friends, maybe you look at your life and you scratch your head and you say, well, what has Jesus done in my life? What has he done? He's done whatever you've let him do. And finally, look at verse 11. And by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Well, not loving their lives to the death overcomes Satan's violence. If they don't cling to their own earthly lives, then there's really no threat that Satan can bring against them. I mean, if they believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain, how can Satan's violence be effective against them? Satan intimidates you with the threat of violence? Well, I'll send persecutors who will kill you. And you say, so? My life isn't so precious to me. Not this human life that I live on this earth. By the way, the ancient Greek word for love here is agape. It says, verse 11, they did not agape their lives to the death. That speaks of a self-sacrificing, decision-based love. It's up to each one of us to choose. Will we love our lives to the death? Will our physical lives be the most precious thing to us? Or will we find our lives by losing them for Jesus Christ? Now, when the victory is won, look at the cry in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you knowing that he has, with having great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. You see, heaven rejoices, but heaven's gain is earth's loss. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, because he knows that he has a short time. Friends, Satan's power is real and triumphant, and it will be all the more so during the Great Tribulation when this happens. But don't you think Satan himself knows that his time is growing shorter and shorter? So Satan's power is real and terrifying, 
not because he is triumphant, but because he knows that he's beaten and he has a short time left. He's like a wounded, cornered animal that fights ferociously. I don't know about you, but maybe you've thought, like I have sometimes, you just think, well, why doesn't he just give up? I mean, like, hasn't he read this thing? Doesn't he know how it ends? Friends, don't forget that Satan is utterly depraved. Probably in some spiritual way, we would call him insane. And he is a master deceiver. And the greatest deceivers are themselves deceived. Satan has probably deceived even himself into thinking that he has a chance. Listen, to me, I can almost make sense of it as to why Satan doesn't give up. What I can't make sense of is why sometimes I don't give up. That makes even less sense. Our rebellion against God makes even less sense than Satan's rebellion. Let's look here, verses 13 through 16. Here the conflict shifts back to the earth again. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now again, should we remind ourselves, John is speaking to us as he has said. He announced this. He's speaking to us in what? In signs. You're not going to see, well, even from a heavenly seat, You're not going to see in the great tribulation, looking down from heaven, a dragon spewing a flood of water out of his mouth, chasing down some poor woman who's fleeing away. These are vivid signs given to John to depict in an illustrative way what's going to happen during the great tribulation. And of course, Satan and the Antichrist himself is going to persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child. We should ask ourselves the question, Why? Why does Satan attack the Jewish people with such strength, with such vehemence all through history? Friends, this is a question for all history, not only for the Great Tribulation. The reason is because Israel, from the time of Abraham, has had a critical role in God's plan of redemption. First, it was in bringing forth the Redeemer. Then it was in the fulfillment of the plan of redemption because Jesus promised that the Jewish people would exist and would welcome him when he returns in glory to this world. He said to his people, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, if the Jewish race could be obliterated from the planet Earth, then God's plan would be destroyed. If the Jewish people could could never reach out to Christ, then God's plan would be destroyed. So if Satan succeeds in destroying the Jewish people, then God's eternal plan is thwarted. Now do you see the real source of anti-Semitism? It's satanic. The persecution of Israel is part of the satanic program to hinder the work of God. 
But God protects the woman, doesn't he? You saw that in verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. And that's a picture from the Exodus. Eagle wings, an emblem from the Exodus. Deliverance. It's another way of connecting these people with, with Israel. And she's nourished there, as you see in verse 14, for time and times and half a time, which is a poetic way of referring to three and a half years. So friends, this flood of persecution coming against the Jewish people in this time of the great tribulation, yet the Lord protecting them. As it says in Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Finally, let's conclude tonight with verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, it says there that the woman is still the target of satanic persecution, right? During this time of great tribulation. But it also mentions somebody else. The rest of her offspring. They are also targets. Now, who are they? Well, might I suggest that this raises a real problem if this is Mary. If the woman represents Mary, then who are the rest of her offspring? And I'm not talking about just in the sense of of the, the perpetual virginity of Mary. I'm not talking about that. Spiritually speaking, who would be the rest of Mary's offspring? None. No, but there is a additional offspring in an indirect sense from Israel. And who are they? It's we Gentiles. We're the root grafted in, the branch grafted in, I should say. And so, friends, what this tells us is that Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus during the Great Tribulation, along with the Jewish people, will be particular targets of Satan and his Antichrist persecution in the last days. So here we have it. This either begins and continues the first persecution of all those who would not submit to this great satanic dictator, The martyrs of this period were already shown to us in Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 7. He has not succeeded in destroying the souls of these ones. And so now he embarks on a fruitless persecution of their bodies. God's going to conquer. That brings us to the end of chapter 12. Next week we get into chapter 13 where we see more of this vision that spans Revelation chapters 12, 13, and 14, but friends, shouldn't we remind ourselves of something really remarkable in this? It really shows the, the great power and the sovereign control of our God, doesn't it? You know, God's got Satan on a leash. At the end of the game, everything Satan did will end up just serving God's purposes. And in some ways, that's incomprehensible to us. And believe me, I know it is. But I think what we take for refuge in a time like this is a passage like Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. And friends, notice Romans 8.28 did not say, for all things work in isolation to good. If you take any singular event and try to say, well, Lord, where's your triumph in this? It may be awfully hard to figure out. 
But as that strand is woven in the tapestry of God's great plan of the ages, as it's worked together for good, then you see how God works out his plan. So what's that thing bugging you today or this week? It's really not that worthy of really getting you down, is it? Because as painful as it is at the moment or at that season, God will work it together for good in his great tapestry. Father, confirm that to our hearts. We thank you for the glorious triumph of Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would make us overcomers, that you would make us those who overcame the power of Satan and his attacks against us by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives to the end. No, Lord, we want to serve and glorify you. Help us to do that, God. Give us the strength in Jesus' precious name. Amen.